Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com. Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab podcast. Each week, we want to bring you an insightful interview on a specific topic in board game design to help you design and create games people love. And now, here's your host, Gabe Barrett. What's up, my friends? Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, we're talking about storytelling. We're talking about storytelling in games, narrative-driven games. We're talking to a master of storytelling in games, Mr. Jerry Hawthorne. Jerry, welcome back to the show, man. Hello. Thanks for having me. Yeah, super glad to have you back. You were on the show about a year ago, and we were talking about Mice and Mystics. We were talking about kind of the narrative uh, driven aspects of that game and well you've got a new game you've got a game called stuff fables that's it's either out or coming out at this point of, of us talking and, and it's got some really really cool storytelling mechanisms and aspects of it and i am super pumped to talk to you about just kind of what you've learned since mice and mystics since working on this new style of storytelling games but just in case people have never heard of you give me your quick bio who are you who do you work for how'd you get into game design all that good stuff Okay. Um, well, my name is Jerry Hawthorne and, um, you know, I'm a, a husband and I'm a dad, so I have kids of my own and I kind of sort of broke into game design, um, back in 2004 when I got involved in a game called HeroScape. It came out, it was a uh, release by Hasbro. It was this big game that had constructible terrain and pre-painted miniatures. And it was just a fun sort of beer and pretzels, uh, battle game that you got to build, you got to build the environment that you, that you fight in and it was just a lot of fun. I thought it'd be a good game for my nephews. And so I, uh, I'm known in my family for being the guy that gives board games his gifts, you know? So I bought like three copies of this game and gave it to all my nephews and I played it with them. And, um, I found a, a website on the internet that had just popped up. And so I was like one of the first people to join the website. They had a forum. This is back before social media. If, I don't know if you recall, but 2004 <laughs> isn't that long ago, but right. we didn't have like Facebook. We had like MySpace and stuff back then, but we didn't have like Facebook and Twitter and stuff, or at least it wasn't really a big thing back then. So uh, websites would have their own little forum, which would be a place to, to engage with other, other people. Uh, usually the topics would usually revolve around whatever game that was. And so, um, I became a moderator of the forum right away, and um, uh, I got to meet the the guy that designed the game. And uh, he asked he 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 liked uh, my write up about the, my nephews and their enthusiasm of playing the game. And so he uh, he just basically asked me to become a playtester, and I started playtesting. And then the game became fairly popular, and their bandwidth was uh, stretched to its limits, so they started hiring me as a freelancer to design new content for the game and that sort of just evolved into becoming a game designer um i worked on a lot of HeroScape product um then i worked on battleship galaxies and um i worked with wizards of the coast on a DD version of HeroScape. and then after that i uh i went with plat hat games my my buddy uh colby doubt fired up his new game company and i went with plat hat games and started working with them and then uh i was working on my own game design for uh, Mice and Mystics, and Colby um, found out about it and asked if he could be my publisher for it, and that's basically the rest is history. I started working seriously on Mice and Mystics, and we published it. It became a big hit, and I did some expansions for it. Um, I worked on a bunch of other games as a content developer and that sort of thing, and that's that kind of brought me to where I am now. I quit my full-time job, and now I work in uh, the board game industry full-time. Yeah, that's awesome. And your story is similar to so many others of just kind of starting with this passion, starting as a hobby, as a love, and it developing into a full-time gig. All right, so let's talk about storytelling in games. Let's get a good definition, because I feel like there's actually a couple, maybe two or three, five, ten, I don't know, different definitions of storytelling in games. And so let's kind of start defining what some of these are, and then and then we'll kind of you know drill a little bit deeper into kind of the storytelling that you prefer. Sure, sure. Um well, in games, the way I look at it is you have, you, you do have various different kinds of storytelling. You have um, emergent storytelling, where basically um, the mechanics, of the, the game doesn't deliver a story to you. Um, your story is sort of made up through the events that happen in the game. And if those events are rich enough, they sort of uh, link together and provide, uh, your imagination fills in the blanks and you sort of create this own little story. You can talk about it with your friends. Oh, my dude went up there and did this. And did, you remember when that happened? And then that guy did that. And 
That's emergent storytelling. I think it's, it's probably one of the one of the best forms of storytelling in our industry because it is so it's such a creative part of our industry and it really really activates the imagination. Um, then there is narrative games like the kind of games that I work with, where the story is pre-designed for you and in, uh, and then you play you play within that that story. And there's various degrees of how much a player can affect the story. Usually, the bigger impact you have on the story, the uh, more generic that story has to be, so that so that it can adapt to what you're doing. Um, my stories are a little bit more on rails. Um, I have preset characters. You play those preset characters, and you actually read their dialogue and stuff as you're playing through. So it's almost uh, like a, a board game and a book have been sort of mashed together. And some of the elements come out in emergent, you know, uh, gameplay that, that adds to the story. But most of the story is delivered to you. And then the branches are, there are several branches, but they're not nearly as many or as robust as a more generic open-ended story system would be. That's basically it, you know. Yeah, and like you said, Every game tells a story, whether it's through emergent yeah. storytelling or it's actually on rails or the game is telling you the story in and of itself. Because if you think about how players talk about games, after uh -huh. a game, they don't say, hey, you remember that time I traded those two yellow cubes in for a brown cube and did this thing? That's not how they talk about it. They, they say, hey, remember my army was right on your border? Like they tell it like a story. They don't tell it as in game components. Absolutely, absolutely. But I won't say every game has emergent storytelling. For instance, if you and I are playing Splendor, or we're, there's a group of us and we're playing Splendor, you're not going to develop a story. And I'm, I'm, Splendor is great, but you're not going to develop a story. And, and, I, and I, I tell people, I, I, I give people an example of one time when I was on an airplane. There was a person sitting next to me reading a book. They were nearing the end of their book. The person on the other side of me was doing a Sudoku puzzle. And I didn't have, you know, my, my, I was running out of charge on my cell phone, so I didn't have anything to do. So I just sort of sat there. Um, but at some point in the flight, the, the lady finished her book and she shut the book and she just, she looked up and tears almost came out of her eyes and she just took a deep breath. And, and I was like, now that must have been a good book, you know? And she was like, oh, it was wonderful. Yeah. And then, but a little while later, this person finished their Sudoku puzzle and they, you know, folded up their newspaper and stuck it back in their bag. And I thought to myself, a year from now, if I knew that lady and I knew this other person, if, if a year from now I asked them if they remembered this book, they read it, then they might say, well, oh, yes, I remember that book. I, as I recall, I was on a plane to Washington when I read that book. And, you know, if I asked this other person if they remembered the Sudoku puzzle that they played, they probably wouldn't have remembered any individual Sudoku puzzle. So my point is, is that narrative gamings give us an experience that is indelible on our memory banks. And other games, which are wonderful time, you know, way to pass the time and, and a wonderful way to engage with other people, might not leave that indelible, you know, memorable experience. That's where storytelling, whatever kind it is, whether it's emergent or, or, or another kind, that's where storytelling is different than regular gameplay. And that's what that's how you can tell the two apart. Yeah, and I think that is a perfect anecdote for really what we're talking about. Now, now, what is it about storytelling? Let's drill down a little bit deeper, maybe in some human psychology. Just from your opinion, what do you think it is about stories that, that grip us, that really bring us in and help us to remember these things? Well, this is an easy one. It's because whenever you encounter a, an emotional response to something in your daily life, the severity or the, de the de depth of that emotion that you experience uh, determines how well you remember that event. So think of emotions as a way to uh, to put something into your memory banks and and mark it. For, so that you can think back on it later, right? So as an example, a Sudoku puzzle is not going to give you, it might give you pleasure and it might pass the time. And it's a wonderful, wonderful way to pass the time. But it's not going to give you an emotional response. So therefore, the last, I mean, do you remember the last Sudoku puzzle you played? Or if you happen to do a Sudoku puzzle? <laughs> I, no. <laughs> you, you see what I'm saying? It's like these things don't, they don't elicit an emotional response. So therefore, they're never, they're never categorized in your memory banks. The way that the brain works is, Things that are important are things that create an emotional response. So those things naturally get tagged in your in your memory banks. And so what we want to do is we want to create games that deliver an emotionally based story, not just, you know, 
a thin veil of a setting, but rather an emotionally based story, either through emergent gameplay or through narrative gameplay. Emergent gameplay is great because it's so spontaneous, you know, um, but you usually have to have some kind of attachment that allows that emotional reaction to happen. And that attachment, uh, I find that that attachment is more facilitated through adventure style gaming, you know. So if you're playing a, you know, you're building a Starfleet in Twilight Imperium and you're doing all this stuff and you're and you're voting on on galaxy changing laws and things like that. This is building a narrative. It's building an emerging one, and it, you're getting more and more emotionally attached to the role that you're playing in that game, and the experience of your emotions either conflicting or uh, being congruent with your fellow players, those things are going to stick out in your memory banks, and you're going to look back, and you're going to be like, Twilight Imperium, now that's a good game, you know? I remember the time that I took over, you know, Mechatol Rex or whatever, you know? that All that stuff is like the way that you make a game indelible on somebody's memory banks. Those are the games... I mean, that's, you know, that's why you could look back to when you were a kid and you remember the games that you, and those, that's kind of like why you're, you might be attached to, to board games now as a hobby because you remember all these great experiences. Yeah, great points. And if you, going back to Splendor, you know, Splendor is a game of turning this color into that color, it's, it, which is a great puzzle and it's a great thing for your brain and you can have a lot of fun and all that. But like I said, it's not building a story. Now, as far as like the stakes of a story, how how much do you think the popularity of these games, like you said, adventure based games, where you've got like this big epic space opera or this these mice that are trying to overcome this huge adversity of this giant cat to save the day, like how much mm-hmm. of it I guess what I'm trying to say is how high do the stakes need to be for the story to really be gripping, or is there room to kind of have these mundane, normal day in the life kind of things and it still be just as enjoyable epic to the players? I think we're still discovering this stuff as we go along. What the neat thing about our industry is, is that the, is that we have so much left to discover on what we can do with this medium. But I, I can give you a couple of examples of different ways that people use story for different for different effects. For instance, like with with stuff fables, right? I try to make a story that would um, trigger people's. Uh, in, if you're an adult, it would trigger your sentimental side it would uh if you're a parent it would um it would uh, be nostalgic because you're thinking about all of the things that you've gone through as a parent and it's all reflected in the game if you're a child you're going to absorb it as this adventure and it's going to it's going to spark your imagination because you're going to start imagining your own stuffed animals in a different way you know you're going to be like man when i go to sleep my stuffed animals they're there to protect me and you know and they have all these adventures and i knew it i knew they did you know that kind of thing's cool. But there's other kinds of, of games that are coming out now, like Fog of Love, that is a, basically a romance simulator. So I'm like totally stoked that games like this are coming out where, because imagine, I mean, we've just talked about how emotions create a memorable experience. Imagine a game all about love and romance and the you know the the foibles and the and the failures and the and and the and the wonderful accomplishments or the conquests even you could you could explore in a game like that i think that's just fantastic and so i see that we're that that every time i turn around i see these brilliant new ways that our industry is changing things like time stories what a cool idea you know you got you got the the story there that you're working through and then the mechanics have all built in this time loop, you know, deal. And it, it evokes, a, you know, a feeling inside of you. And I think that's fantastic. Yeah. Well, let's talk about stuffed fables and kind of, you know, in case people haven't heard about it, they hadn't seen it on the shelf or anything. Talk, yeah. Tell me, tell us what it is. And then let's kind of dive a little bit deeper into it. Okay. So stuffed fables is a, it's a cooperative family oriented adventure game where each player plays the role as you will they play the role of a little stuffed animal who comes to life at night to protect their little girl from the from the monsters that come from under the bed that try to disturb her sleep. And uh, as you play through the game, you basically follow this little girl's nightly sleep habits from age three to age ten. But each time you play, you'll play through like one milestone night in this little girl's life. So, for instance, like the night before her first day of school, she might have some anxiety before she goes to bed. It's a night that she might likely have interrupted sleep 
And it's nights like those where the stuffies really have to do their job, right? But what you discover during the game is that there's this king of nightmares who basically wants to go, he, he fuels his kingdom off of, you know, interrupting kids' sleep. And on your very first night on the job of, of protecting her, your very first night on the job, the minions come from under the bed to mess up her sleep and they end up stealing her favorite baby blanket and they go back into the portal underneath the bed and you chase them in there and you get sucked into this other world where the, where the monsters come from and then you discover this dark, dreary world of nightmares populated by all these lost and broken toys and ruled by the Nightmare King and he, he uh, I mean, you get swept up in all the in all the needs of these little lost and broken toys who look at you as heroes because you're powered up, you're 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 whole, and you're powered up by the love of a child. So you kind of have superpowers in this other world, and you end up having these adventures that sort of bridge both worlds. So. Yeah, very cool. And now, where did this idea? It's such a creative idea, such a good idea. But where did it come from? Where did the genesis happen? Did you watch Toy Story? Toy Story three and eat some really bad nachos and have a crazy dream and wake up and go, <laughs> I got it. Like, how did it come to be? Well, I will admit that I am a, a fan, you know, a family movie fan. As I became a parent, you know, there's a certain amount of joy being able to sit and watch a movie and all enjoy it, right? So I think one of the best examples of good movies that are enjoyed by parents and kids alike are the Pixar style of movies like Toy Story, what you're talking about. When I watch Toy Story and I'm watching it with my kids, my kids are seeing these toys and all of their antics and, and, they're, and they're cute and charming and, and their imagination is sparked by this idea that toys have this sort of life to them, you know, that's, that's happening behind the scenes. As an adult, for me, it's just like clever and nostalgic and I get all of the humor, this, you know, the, the little subtle humor that's been put in there for me and I feel like rewarded when I, when I catch those little inside jokes and stuff like that. So I love those kinds of movies, right? Well, a couple of years ago, my wife was, uh, took the kids to see the, the latest Pixar movie. It was called um, Inside Out. Have you seen this one? Yeah, yes. It's super good. Okay. <laughs> my wife, they were leaving the movie theater. My wife gets on her phone. She calls me. She's like, oh, my God, you have to see this movie. You're going to want to make a game. <laughs> she goes, it's that good. And then I said, when I, when I saw the movie, basically what it's about, and I know you've seen it, but mm-hmm. maybe there'd be some listeners out there who might not have seen it, but. Um, just to jog their memory or whatever. It's about this little girl who's going through, a, you know, sort of a tumultuous time in her life. She's a preteen. And uh, that's if that isn't tough enough, um, her parents are moving to a whole other state, you know, and so she has to give up her friends and her life. And there's a lot of anxiety there. Well, you get to experience all this as an observer. You, you watch how, what's happening inside of her head as her emotions are all sort of thrown into upheaval by this this upsetting event in her life. You get to watch her emotions basically process this. And each each emotion is represented by a character, and each character is color-coded. They sort of match the emotion, like joy is yellow, and sadness is blue, and anger is red. And so there's like this really great primary color sort of, you know, coding going on here. And they, of course, they each are in control of that particular emotion and watching them have this dynamic interaction and stuff. It's an amazing movie. And I immediately thought, oh, I want to make a game. I want to gamify this movie. And so how would I do that? And so I started thinking about how they color coded the characters and how you could have a game where each player plays the role of an emotion. And um, and then I, I came up with this dice system that it has to be super easy. That way it's all about the it's all about the story and all about the emotions and less about the actual mechanics of the game's gameplay. So the gameplay almost has to, you know, sort of recede. And, um, but because I work in the hobby market, there has to be enough game there that the hobby, hobby gamers are going to enjoy. So, you know, I had to walk all these, uh, you know, different tight ropes and stuff, but I came up with this little dice system, really easy to learn, quick to teach and uh, flexible enough that it could cover a whole bunch of story based experiences but what it is is basically I there's a there's a colored dice for each of the different character attributes. When I was uh, when I was thinking about the movie uh, Inside Out, um, I I pretty quickly on I realized that well I can't make Inside Out. First of all, we don't have that IP, and second of all, I, I'm not interested in making a game about somebody else's IP. I actually want to develop my own IP, and I, I started thinking about you know what would be a good theme and what what would bridge that whole 
the whole age gap between adults and children, parents, and and also the experience gap between you know hardcore gamers and non-gamers. And um, I thought stuffed animals. Basically, everybody has some sort of memory of stuffed animals, whether they're a kid and they actively love and enjoy their stuffed animals, or whether they're an adult and they still remember their favorite stuffed animal from when they were a kid. This is something that's fairly universal if you think about it. I mean, it's something everybody can identify with. So that was basically where I started. I was like, every player could be a stuffed animal. They come to life at night, and that's when their job starts, you know, um, and they sleep all day, and they uh, and then I could base each of them on a different aspect of this girl's personality, not necessarily her emotions, but more like her needs, you know, what, which one does she turn to for these individual needs? And so I started crafting the characters, and the characters sort of informed the story, basically. But I, I was thinking, you know, all right, so uh, she's going to have her favorite one, the one that she cuddles at night, you know, because she can't cuddle all of them. So she's going to have one, that one, you know, that my daughter and son both had that one that was the most beat up and worn out of all of them because they got the most, you know, snuggling at night. And I figured that one would kind of be like the leader. And because they have this, not because they're better than all the other stuff, but because they have this exalted position, you know, and um, they know the little girl. They're, they have more of an emotional connection to this little girl in general. And then each of the other ones might represent a different kind of need that she would have. So when she's sad, she goes to Lumpy the elephant. She tells him all of her woes. And then he holds them in. So he's very sensitive. But he's also really strong. And um, Flops would be the one that she plays with when she's giggly and sassy. And she just represents this girl's spirit, you know, her her spiritedness. And then you got... Um, Stitch, who's the old timer, he's been passed down from generation to generation. And she looks at him as a connection to her ancestral heritage. You know, she thinks of her grandfather or the wisdom of her grandmother. Um, and and you have uh, Lionel, who's like her temper. And you have Piggle, who's uh, her her positive energy. And so anyways, you have you have all these characters that represent the, the little the little girl's personality. And then they all work together and their their abilities all sort of uh, mesh together as you're playing the game. So if one person's playing Lumpy, they have a different skill set um, then and the skill sets match each other so that they can all cooperate. And the game has a bunch of mechanics all built in um, that allow you to cooperate with each other a little bit more. It's a, The game is really focused on sort of working through the experience together and interacting a lot. Yeah, that's so cool, man. Like, I'm so excited. I can't wait to play it. <laughs> and so you got you guys over there at Plat Hat, you're calling this an adventure book game. And so tell me more about that, because that's really where the, the story lives. Now, there's emergent story going on, but you also mm. have a very narrative-driven game. So tell me about the adventure book system in general, and then kind of what you're doing with it in Stuff Fables. Sure. I, I mentioned the different story um story types that you can have in gaming and stuff. And I'm, I, sh I most certainly didn't exhaust all of the possibilities, but I, I like a lot of story in my game. You know, different people have different, you know, levels. I like a lot of story in my game. I mean, you can, you can pull away a lot of the gameplay and have the game mostly exist in the story. And the more you do that, the happier I am as a, <laughs> as a gamer. Yeah. I'm not interested in like testing my wits against somebody to prove right. that I, you know, that I'm a master that strategic person or whatever, you know, I, uh, I'm more interested in having this connection with people and, um, a mutuality of, of, of connection. So I love cooperative games and I love story-based games. And so my games have a lot of narrative that's already hard baked into the game. So with, um, adventure book gaming is basically something that I created that gives me an engine so that I can explore the different stories that I want to tell through gameplay and stuff. Ables is the first one. And it's, it's, it's basically saying, I want to create a game that's a book that you can play like a game. You literally play inside the book. I don't know if I mentioned that, but it's like it comes in this big 104-page tome, and you open up in the first page, and you just start playing, and you play through. And as you're going, every page is different. It's a different environment, and there's branching stories, so it might send you to this page or that page, but every time you get to a new page, it's going to be a new game. You're going to have an environment that you're playing in, and you're going to have story over here on this page, and it's going to guide you through while you're playing on the other page. And um, what this does is it allows me more flexibility than my submistics to tell the different kind of stories that I want to tell. 
my first story is uh, fables, but I'm working on one right now that's actually adult-oriented, and so it's not about a bunch of kids. It's not about a bunch of anthropomorphic this or that. It's uh, it's going to be rela- it's going to be partially rooted in the real world. So you are going to have experiences that are going to be more they're they're going to cross over into the mundane a little bit, and so your the story is going to be, uh, it, but. I can't really talk about it very much. <laughs> no I'm, not, I'm not allowed to talk about it, so I can't really describe it very much. But it right. is going to be very much an adventure book game where you're flipping through the pages, going to this page to that page, and uh, reading through the story, and it's going to have a lot of narrative to it. Yeah, and what's so cool about these games is like it adds new rules and stuff as well, right? So you're not having to learn the whole game at the beginning. You can kind of learn new rules as you go. Yeah, like the well, we deliver a framework of rules up front. So you get this little rule book, and it's like, I don't know, seven pages of rules, teaches you how to how the dice system works and stuff. And then anytime we want to mix things up a little bit, we just do it in the in the book. When, so we, as you're playing, there will be like a new rule. And you know how the dice work this way up to this point? Well, on this page, they're going to work a little bit differently. And we just give you that rule right then and there. And then you don't have to remember it. You just forget about it after you leave that page. We also have like... One thing that we did in My Submistics is probably in hindsight was not the most optimal way of doing it. But in My Submistics, we gave you a big fat rule book that had it covered everything that you would need to know. So if at some point you happen to come across the, some run, running water or something, um, then it had a big old section in the rule book that taught you how to manage that section. And the problem was is that what, that, what happens in is if, if, if you play through a whole adventure and you never experienced water or fire or whatever, you know, then you never got to use that rule, right? And then the next time you play, you encounter some water. Well, you don't remember that rule. You read the rule book months ago, you yeah. know, so now you're looking stuff up. And nobody wants to stop the game and look stuff up. So what we did with this is we just created a little deck of cards that have all those little stupid extra rules on them the way that water works or the way that fire works or whatever. So if you encounter something that is rare in the game, rather than having to reference the rule book, the storybook just says, grab environmental effect card, blah, 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 and put it into play. And then you just set the card next to the, next to the book, and it gives you that rule. And it doesn't have to take up room in the book. It gives us more space for story, but you also don't have to look it up in the rule book to find out. It's just going to sit right there. So it's a little rules reference card for the, you know, for the times you encounter water or the times you have to, you know, use your leaping ability to jump over a chasm. You know, you're not going to be jumping over stuff in every page, you know. So it's just a, it's just a simple way to keep that clutter out of the rule book and also keep it out of the storybook as well. Yeah, and I think it's such a really innovative way to tackle edge cases, to tackle these things that you're edge only going to exactly. you're only going to need them every now and then. And so, don't waste space in your rule book because one, it makes the rule book thinner, which gets the game to the table faster. Anytime somebody sees a thin rule book, they're like, "Oh, let's play this game. It's gonna it must be easier to learn." Yeah, I mean, our busy lives and with more games uh, available to everybody, everybody has a bigger game collection. Yep. Large rule books. Well, any rule book in our company, Plat Hat Games, not our parent company, but at Plat Hat Games, rule books are the enemy. They're basically yeah. a barrier towards fun. We consider fun on the other side. Rule book is in the middle of you getting to your fun. You have to slog through this. Some people enjoy reading rule books, you know, but once once I became a professional in this industry, I mean, I hate reading rule books now. I'd rather just you know fire up Rodney Smith and let him. <laughs> teach me something, you know, right. but rule books create a barrier for people. And there are some people who never actually, they're never able to make it past that barrier. We don't want that. We don't want to have uh, any sort of barrier that, that prevents people from enjoying our games, because I think our games have the potential to have a wide amount of uh, enjoyment, we, to reach a wide amount of variety of people. And the smaller our rule books are, the easier it is for a, a broader amount of people to enjoy them. And so being able to uh, brainstorm and come up with clever ways of reducing the, the rules footprint but, but not losing any of the dynamism, that's the daily challenge at our Plat Hat games, you know. 
Yeah, for sure. Now, what are what are the ways that Stuff Fables moves the story forward? Now, I remember in Mice and Mystics, you had this like big, not, a, not long, but a, a narrative part at the beginning, and you would read this before you jumped into the scenario, kind of set up the story aspects of what was going on. Does Stuff Fables do the same thing? And then also, do you have like stuff going on in the middle? So it's like whenever you accomplish this one thing in a scenario, does it add more to the story? Or just tell me how it works. Well, um, it's very... It, it, it's very similar to Mice and Mystics, except for there there are more story moments. You know, Mice and Mystics has these things we call story moments. So when you when you reach a story moment, the the storybook you would break from gameplay and read that story moment. Those are happening all the time in in um, stuff fables. They're they're sort of just part of it. And what what happens is because we have this, every page has a has a new environment, and we're able to create that new environment just for that one scene, um, we're able to like put in all these different elements and stuff. And you, you go to this eyeball and it has an, an eyeball and a number on it. And then you reference that in the, on the other page and it'll tell you what you see and it'll be done in story fashion, you know, and it'll be like, you know, you see a, you know, you see a lost stuffed puppy dog, you know, looking around for asking for its, uh, for its boy or whatever, you know? And, um, and, and you interact, and so th- th- it's happening all the time. And as as players are taking their turn, they're going to be encountering the story because it's going to be constantly referencing back and forth from the real, from the from the environmental area, and then the story part. But you also have these what we call lost cards in the game, and they're whenever you go to these little word bubbles on the these little word bubble symbols on the map, then you draw a card off of this little deck, and what it is, it's a it's like a little encounter with a lost or broken toy that needs your help. And it, uh, it always has like a little story, but it's also a little mini fable too. And it'll have like a little title, like a fable. And, uh, you interact with these little lost and broken toys and they're like little mini quests. And there are things that you can do to help out, help them out in this dreary world that they live in. And the more of those that you do, uh, I don't want to give away too much, but the more of those that you do, there are ways that the game grows and wraps around your characters. Like you'll start as you play through the story, you'll see the impact of your actions in previous chapters as you go along. But it's done in emergent gameplay style, you know, delivering smaller little bits of story that are kind of dynamic and that you you affect because it'll uh, it'll have you adding cards into that deck based upon what you do. So you seed things for later on. Yeah, and is that deck random, or is it in a very... It's random. Okay, it, cool. It's, ra- it's random. And we also have what we call a uh, discovery deck. And a discovery deck is uh, when you sit down to play chapter one, right? It'll tell you, grab the discovery deck for chapter one, but don't look at those cards. And it's like a little, a little stack of cards. Well, whenever you encounter something new that you've never encountered before, then it'll tell you to go to that discovery deck and grab that thing out of the discovery deck and add it to your game. So as you're playing, the game is kind of growing along with you, almost like a legacy style, but not permanent and mm-hmm. and not not heavy and full of mechanics. It's just it just add add more stuff to your game. Yeah, and it's <laughs> a really really cool way to do it. And it's emergent because like if I go through the game. I'm going to hit these things differently at a different time, different pace than what you would with your game group. And we can have, we can be going through the same big picture story, but still experience these smaller scenes or slices of the story in different ways. That's a really cool way to do it. Yeah. And the same thing with like the items and stuff, you could search this. You're in a world that is like completely populated by lost and broken toys. Think of it as like a giant landfill for toys, right? So all of your armor and weapons and all of your gear are repurposed old broken toys and stuff, right? So, so as you're, whenever you search in this other world, you'll find something that you can use, and that can, that'll be different because it's a random deck of stuff. So you're, the way that your characters are are kitted out is different every time you play, and because you have to, I forgot to mention this, but you only have the the girl's night's sleep to accomplish your whatever the mission is. So you have to get back before she wakes up. You go back to the real world, you have to ditch all that gear and stuff because you have to like climb back into bed with her and snuggle up <laughs> next to her and stuff. You can't, you know, you can't have a, you know, a bunch of stuff that you found. Um, so anyways, that's, 
that's kind of like an interesting feature because it, it, it's sort of a reset. So every time you play, you start off with a with a an unarmed little stuffed animal, and they have to find stuff to help them out. Yeah, but it makes sense, and I love how you you're, you're yeah. explaining that through the the story through the gameplay as opposed to just saying uh, this is just what we decided as a design team. No, like this actually makes sense. I think that's a good way to do it. <laughs> now, what are the big challenges in designing a game like this? What are some of the, the walls you kept running into and had to figure out ways around or through or under or that kind of thing? Okay, so the biggest challenge, I would say the, the very, very biggest challenge is creating a story that can be translated into gameplay yeah. so that it's compelling gameplay Mixed with a compelling story, they both have to. They both have to be compelling. You can't have. I mean, you can't have a, a story that is lacking in events that create gameplay because then you don't have anything, and you can't have uh, so much gameplay that you're not able to infuse it with story. So I can't like load a page full of a bunch of rules because then that becomes unfun and non-immersive, right? Right. So. There, that that balance is really tough, uh, tougher than I actually thought it would be when I set out to accomplish this. And every time I write these stories that I tell and I create these games that are intertwined with these stories, it's like it, it drains me. Like, mm. you know, it's, it's I wouldn't recommend it. Like I I'm envious of some of my fellow game designers because they'll come up with a good game engine, you know, and then after that. Their work mostly involves uh, working with developers who are perfecting their engine and making sure it runs really smooth. Right, making it balanced and that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. So, and they kind of manage that, and that it seems to me like that would be so like enjoyable. Yeah. Compared to the way I do things, you know, because if I have to rewrite a story, then I have have to rewrite the gameplay that is associated right. with it, and it's just not. It's not pleasant, but then again, you look at the end result and you get feedback from people who who played your stories and stuff, and you understand because they tell you people will tell you how things impacted their lives and like how some element of your story affected them emotionally because it matched something in their life or they found relevance to things that are going on in their life, and that's like incredibly rewarding. And I don't think that people who just create an engine i don't think that they i don't think that they they might ever get that you know what i'm saying yeah they'll, they'll have fans and they'll have adoration and i'm not after adoration i want to know that i'm making an impact and so my goals are probably different than a lot of game designers i mean i i specifically want to make an impact on people's lives rather than create something that is uh just a distraction well, no, and that's fantastic too. But uh, there's a brilliance there that that's somebody else's forte. Mm. You know, that's something that somebody else is good at. Like uh, you know, I work real closely with Isaac Vega here in the studio. He creates these you know incredible games that are full of like major punch. You know, Dead of Winter. He's got Starship Samurai coming out. He did um, City of Remnants. Uh, I mean, you know. The, the, the game design there has got punch to it and it's brilliant work. And I do something different, you know, yeah. I do something that is that, that, that exists in the emotional realm, I guess, maybe a little bit more than, than the strategic realm or the, the analytic realm or whatever. I'm like a, on the other side of the brain or something. I don't know. <laughs> but now we have this, a lot of synthesis going on in our, in our, workplace here you know well, like uh where you see stories starting to encroach in on on strategic games and stuff like that take dead of winter as an example like the crossroad card mechanic basically gives you this emerging story right. that story is very character driven and, and 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 attached to a, a lot of characters have their own stories that you can experience and then the more you play the game because you'll never i mean there's like 80 of them that come with the game uh the more you play the game, the more you get to know the different characters in there. And if you think about that, that's like that's actually really cool because you wouldn't normally get that from a strategy game where you're, you know, a meta cooperative or whatever, where you're mostly, you know, competing or 
semi-competing with everybody. So I think that's kind of cool. That kind of thing that we see happening in our industry where a story, people are realizing the value of story and they're craving it in their games and stuff. I think you're going to just keep on seeing that. Yeah, I completely agree. I think with the popularity of games like yours, games like Time Stories, games like Eldritch Horror and some of these other games that have just really great narrative in there, whether it's on rails or whether it's more emergent, I think they're so popular and people are buying them. And so publishers are going to keep making them, obviously, because there's money there. But I think they're having a huge impact on people. And if you look at the top games in uh, on Board Game Geek, on Board Game Geek, it's Gloomhaven right now. It's Pandemic Legacy, right? It's these games that mm-hmm. have big time story uh, aspects to them. And going back to what you said earlier about it kind of draining you, you know, I, I majored in creative writing in college, and so mm-hmm. I took so many writing classes and wrote so many stories and all that. And I remember, I think it was a quote from Hemingway. I'm pretty sure it was Hemingway who said, "All it takes to write a story." is to sit down at the typewriter and bleed. And I was like, well, yeah, that's about right. That's kind of how it is. And, and like you said, it just kind of takes it out of you. Yeah, we have, there's been some discussions flying around um, the interwebs lately. This, uh, there's a new game that came out in uh, late November, early December called Legacy of Dragon Hole. came yeah. out from Fantasy Flight Games mm-hmm. um, by Nikki Valens. And um, she's a, a very um, well-established uh writer in our industry and game designer and um Le- legacy of dragon Hole, uh takes the storytelling to almost to the full end of the spectrum where there's very very minimal very minimal gameplay and mostly it's about enjoying the story together and creating an elegant system for a group of people to mutually enjoy the same story together as, as and having their characters have impact on that story and having the mechanics of it disappear into the background while you're playing, like, and that elegance and that that uh, just the intricacy of how she wove her story together, so that when you're playing it, you don't you don't see the the you don't see the engine behind it. It all is seamless. That kind of thing is brilliant. And while it while it might not be for everybody because it might not have enough mechanics for people who who you know really need who are in the, they're gamers so while they love story they also love games too they want a little bit of both of that i could see why some might might not engage with it as well but i would love everybody to try, at least try it out because what you're what you're doing here when you're playing legacy of dragonhold is you're literally reading a book where your character is one of the characters in the book and you're going through and your character has impact on the story and people are calling it a choose your own adventure and that's just not giving it enough justice you know there is there is something way more elegant and way more modern than just a choose your own adventure kind of thing where you're just writing passages and you know this is really something different and new so we're seeing like like we're seeing it go all the way to that extent where you're like really right in the story. And I just think it's fantastic. I'm a huge fan. Yeah. Nikki's easily one of the best writers in the industry. If you look up her credits, it's on so many games. She's been in everything and she, she's just, yeah, I've just completely taken away by, uh, by her writing. It's just fantastic. Yeah. I've asked her, I've been trying to get her to come on the show. She's super shy and just uh-huh. really is kind of nervous about the whole podcast and interview thing. And so I've been trying to, trying to get her on the show. Cause I would love to talk to her about her, her process of writing. I mean, if you look at dragon Hole, and I haven't played it, but I watched uh, the dice tower do a playthrough video of it. Mm-hmm. And I've just seen like just the sheer amount of content like that is, I don't like books and books and books worth. If you were going to put it into a novel, it would be a series of novels of content. Uh, it's incredible. Yeah. And because I've done this with Mice and Mystics right. and stuff, Fables and stuff, I know, I feel like I know what Nikki had to go through to create that. Like she had to write every possible outcome and then do justice for every possible character combination. So this isn't just a, a simple choose your own adventure thing. That's, people aren't giving enough of a look. When my character, I play a, um, I'm playing through it solo and I am a, cat folk bard and um so i have all these performance skills and acrobatics and athletics and stuff like this you know and i'm like i imagine my whole character as like this like a i don't know like a like a like a lively eccentric cat that travels around and does all does his own one-man show right so i'm playing through the story and everything and 
I can't tell you how many times my character was fully realized by by Nikki. Like she pulled that magic trick on me, dude. Mm-hmm. Like she made me feel like like the like the experiences that were happening to my character were a natural evolution of where that where my character would take the story. It's like they were going together, they were in groove with each other, and it was really pretty cool. And I can only imagine that that that's the same experience, different story, but same feeling that all every other player would get out of it is they, that they feel like their character was really, really well fleshed out in the way that the story unfolds. Yeah, for sure. I love that. Yeah, because it's not like she just put insert name here and you put your name in and then just read the yeah. same generic story as everybody else would read. It's it's much deeper. All right, but let's go. Let's get back to stuff fables and just kind of sure. general. Uh, this type of game, and maybe Dragonholt kind of plays in this too. How in the world sure. do you playtest these games? What are the challenges in playtesting when you're really trying to develop the gameplay and the story and all that and, and make it work? Yeah, the, you know, playtesting is is interesting because, like, you could have different goals for playtesting, right? And you could you could you could state those goals, or you could you could have the players think that the goal is one thing, and then when you when you uh, generate that data, uh, then you could throw a curveball and say, well, what did you think about the, the story? Or if you're specifically making sure that they want to enjoy the story, you could ask for that feedback up front. Um, and then also make sure that, that there's no points sticking points where the mechanics are getting in the way or blocking the story from evolving in a natural way. You know, you just want to have everything be a tight 90 minute experience with the same sort of rise and fall that you would have in a movie that was a 90 minute long movie. So you have to make sure that you write your story so that it naturally builds up to a climactic moment at the right time. And then, um, usually in stuff fables, it's that climax happens right about the time that the stuffies have to get back to the girl before she wakes up and stuff. So there's this rush to, uh, to get back and stuff. So that has to, that has to be there. And so the play testers, when I did stuff fables, they were, they were tasked with, making sure that there was no broken links in the, in the choose your own adventure aspect of the story, making sure that nothing was overpowered or underpowered, you know, that things didn't feel too easy or too hard to, to overcome. Um, they were given a, a percentage win rate that they needed to make sure that things were kind of in that zone. I wanted like a 70% win rate kind of thing. And we had, you know, um, we had, had to pull one story out because the playtesters didn't like it. So I took that story out and I had to reimagine it and I'm going to be releasing it as a lost chapter for people to download and play, you know, for free. Yeah, that's pretty much. And, and also making sure that they, um, that we had playtesters that had kids and, and, and uh, a mixture of different gaming experience so that we could see how these um, different, different people in, interact with the game. And the uh, kids just fell in love with the game. I had uh, one play tester. His they played through the whole thing, and his son turned right around and said, "I want to start over, and I want to play through it again, Dad." <laughs> so you know, you think that uh, you think about replayability and things like that, and then you have kids who are like begging to play through the thing that they've already played through, and that's pretty cool. Yeah, and Lord knows, kids will watch the same movie forty-seven times in a row, and so if you can get that same feeling out of a game, I think you're onto something really special. Uh, did you run into yeah. issues like I've talked to people in the past that, that were creating scenario driven games and especially mm-hmm. games that had kind of branching paths. And they talked about how they had to get, they had to keep getting new playtest groups because you needed people who didn't know where the story was going to go. Did you run into that where you kind of had to get a new group of people every, every so often just because you needed them to have a fresh slate or clean slate? Yeah. Yeah. This is the first time that's ever happened to me, but um, we had a um, an initial set of playtesters, And I think that um, part of the, issue with the first set was that the, they gave us they gave me so much feedback that the game changed so much with the second group because of the first group and the first group was sort of tainted so I had to have you know what I'm saying because yeah. they'd already been through the experience so I had to like get a whole fresh group and try my new <laughs> rendition of the game on the on the on the fresh group and um, that seemed to work out really well but it was definitely um, there is definitely an enormous challenge to playtesting for this kind of game, but also, in some ways, it's not it's not as big a challenge as playtesting play for like a um, like we do Ashes playtesting. You know, our, co- our company has the game Ashes, and that has to have meticulous balance to it that um, 
that is impervious to, um, to any kind of undermining of that balance, right? In a cooperative story-based game, that's less the focus. We want to make sure that it's a fun experience, that there's nothing broken. But, I mean, you don't have to make sure that it stands up to tournament standards, you know, and has been, um, you know, when, when we play Test for Ashes, they, they, I mean, they try every iteration to make sure that there's nothing broken. There's no combination of cards that'll win the game, you know, so consistently that they make it broken or something like that. We don't have to worry about that. So that's a relief, you know. Yeah. Any other challenges with playtesting? Yes, there is a big challenge with playtesting when it comes to a narrative game like this. And it's the volume of the components that the playtesters have to work with, especially in, in an adventure book game where it's this giant tome. Like, who prints that out? Right. Um, who pays for it? Uh, you know, how, how feasible is it that somebody's going to print out a 104-page? I mean, that's, it's crazy, dude. It's crazy. We, uh, we have to print. They're very expensive to print on our own and we have to send out printed copies and you can't have a whole bunch of revisions. You know what I'm saying? You can't constantly revise. It's too costly, too time consuming. And so you have to be at a place with the game before you send those copies out. You have to be at a place with the game where you've done in-house testing enough that you know that you're not, you're not going to change a bunch. You're going to make sure that it's not broken. Yeah, that's a great point. And then, yeah, just the cost of materials, the cost of prototyping stuff and all that. Yeah, like you're saying, you can't just keep doing it. And you got to ship it. And it's not cheap to ship a gigantic, heavy, I guess you get media mail, which is a little cheaper. But again, that's, that's something that uh, the designers need to think about. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of dollars. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Now, what are the challenges in demoing a game like this? You're at a convention, you're at, you know, somewhere and you're trying to show people the game. It's got to be different to, to demo a narrative game as opposed to just some regular Euro. It is different. Um, what happens is the convention hall is really loud, mm. and it's not conducive to reading story. So what we try to do is we try to have um, the demoers be familiar enough with the story that they can tell the story, but they reduce the, the length of time. You know, they, they reduce it down, condense it down a little bit, tell people what are, what's happening, Mention to them that this, that they're paraphrasing what's going on in the story, so that they don't that they can save their voice and they don't have to shout over the crowd, and just kind of get them in and get them playing the game and get them feeling the mechanics of it all and stuff, and showing them like with stuff fables, showing them how adorable the world is and how immersive and how visually you know stunning it is, and showing them the gameplay and how the how the characters cooperate and interact with each other and the world, so that that they understand how that works. But don't spoil the story for them. Just give them a little bit of a, you know, a watered-down version of the story. That way, then you tell them, you say, hey, now, listen, I don't want to give too many spoilers away, so I'm just going to kind of water down the story for you here, get you into the game, show you the gameplay, show you how to interact with each other and everything. But when you buy the game, you'll be able to read through here and see all of this, you know, and read all of this and stuff, and it's a much more rich experience, especially in the quiet setting of your own home rather than a loud con- you know, convention hall. Yeah, how long do those demos usually last? It depends. Like, um, what we've been doing with Stuff Fables is we've only been playing through like the first page or two. Now, a page in Stuff Fables is going to take about fifteen to twenty minutes to play a page. So, depending upon whether they play one page or two pages, it's going to be around you know thirty to forty minutes. Gotcha. And so, like, I've seen some companies who had very story-driven games that didn't want to spoil anything, and so they actually create, like, a Chapter Zero, which is kind of their demo version of the game. Have you thought about that, or, or is that a good idea? What do you think? I thought about doing that, but we wanted to... We, well, we felt it was okay for them to see um, what the opening of the story is all about. That way, um, it's kind of like watching a trailer where the trailer for a movie where they show you the premise of the movie. So you know what it's about, you know, whether you're going to want to go see it or not, you know what it's about. And then they might give you some glimpses of some of the action and events that happen in the story, but they're not going to show like the big ending or whatever, you know? So what we do is we let them play a taste of that first room without like reading every tiny little bit. We just give them a, a taste of that first part of the adventure, the way that the adventure starts. And then they get to see how the gameplay works and stuff like that. Um, and I think that for us, it's not only more cost effective, but uh, it seems to work. It did 
did that with Mice and Mystics as well. You know, with Mice and Mystics, we established a stopping point where, okay, play up to this part and then ask the players if they want to continue playing or, you know, if, if it's a really crowded convention, a lot of people are wanting to get it, sit down at the table, then you're going to say, okay, let's let some other people play, you know. And now you know how the game plays, you can find it at your local, you know, game store, and this is how much it costs, and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, very cool, man. Now, where do you see storytelling going in the industry from here? Now, you, you've mentioned you're already working on more of these adventure book games and kind of going with some more, uh, you know, not adult-themed, but like older player-themed maybe. Uh, where else do you see these things kind of going? Well, I think that I could probably write an adventure book game on just about any kind of topic, you know, that has adventure. <laughs> so um, it could go really anywhere. Um, I even had a, uh, I even had one person months ago said that they thought that the adventure book system would be great for a war game hmm. where you're playing through a war, right? So you, you open up the book, the first page is you're hitting the beach, you know, it's a beachhead. You're trying to take the beachhead and everything. And you're reading, you know, events that are happening, you know, as you're as you're reaching points in this strategy game, you know, you're reading over here what what's happening, right? And then, depending upon how this battle turns out, right, it tells you what page to go through, right? Mm -hmm. So imagine you're playing um, through World War II and you're you're storming the beach at Normandy, you know, and then, you know. Then you turn a page and you're at uh, Crenton or whatever, you know, one of these little one of these little French towns where, you know, where these villages and stuff where a, a, a main battle was fought, you know, and then eventually you're at the Battle of the Bulge, you know, and you're playing through this book and it's all a strategy game. But yeah. it also has narrative elements that are guiding you through and teaching you history at the same time. So as you see, there's there's like no end to the different cool things that you could do with this, you know. And because of the, the format of the game and being able to change it every time you change a page, you could have extremely different experiences. For instance, the Normandy thing that I was talking about, right? Let's say you start off with page one. It's Pegasus Bridge. Are, are you familiar with the whole you know storming of Normandy and everything? Yes. Yeah. I mean, but, not okay, in so, depth, but I know what you're talking about. Yeah, I don't want to sound too like a grognard or whatever. No, you're good, man. <laughs> but, uh, basically, before, basically, before the beach landing, um, they had to take this bridge, right? So they had the paratroopers come in and they had to take this bridge, right? You could do that at squad level on that page, right? Then you could, after that's done, that leads you to whatever. Like, let's say you failed that mission, then you, then that might affect your, your beach storming. You go to this one and it's more on an operational level, you know, or a larger level where, you know, so the scale can be changed in and out in the game. And I think that that's a, that's something I would love to experiment around with yeah i think there's so many options there and if you think about i don't know if you saw the new expansion for scythe i think it's called the rise of fenris or something like that where they're taking a very much euro game and throwing mm -hmm. scenario based story on it with some legacy elements where you're opening up new boxes and you're finding new cards and that kind of thing and that's a euro yeah. you know and, and it's creating this really cool narrative story for a, a game like Scythe and so i think the the options are just almost limitless of what we can do going forward with storytelling oh yeah yeah like uh getting you know getting back to this 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 strategy idea like this world war 2 idea like like the idea of being able to play something like that, but having a story be part of it now in a way that never has been, I think those are the doors that I want to open up with, with my adventure book game idea and stuff, you know, and I hope that other, other designers, um, who want to, um, who want to do like an adventure book style kind of game and stuff. I hope that they make something fantastic so I can play their, um, their vision and see, see what they do with it and stuff. Because yeah. there's like a lot of different, there's a lot of different uh, doors that I think are open because of breaking down these kinds of barriers, you know, and creating something that that works that hasn't really been done before, you know. Yeah, for sure. Now, what kind of advice would you give? What kind of closing thoughts would you give somebody who's working on a narrative game, working on a, sta a storytelling game right now? What would you tell them? I would say that there's probably never been a time in board gaming where a story was so so much a thing like it is right now um so don't don't give up and um have the courage to put your heart into your story and you know put your put a little bit of yourself in there um 
because like if you're writing something that's going to resonate with people, you need to, you need to put some of yourself in there. That way there's heart in there and that's something that resonates with people. And I think that, I think that it's probably one of the most worthy endeavors that you could be involved in, whether you're a game designer or just a writer in general. Awesome. Well, Jerry, really appreciate you coming on the show. We're about to head over into a bonus round. We're going to talk about how to demo your game, either at a convention or a game store. We talked about how to how to demo a narrative game, but we're just going to get into the general aspect of dem- demoing any game uh, in the bonus round. So, again, Jerry, thank you for your time, and good luck with everything you got going on right sure. now. Sure. Excellent. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com and find all sorts of game design resources, bonus material, and chances to win free games at boardgamedesignlab.com. And until next time, keep designing, keep playtesting, and keep creating great games. Did I mention keep playtesting?